a study in uh, Ezekiel. And man, is this just uh, a marvelous book. Uh, I love this book. Um, I go study other books, and then when I come back to this one, I remember why this one's my favorite. I think all these, the other 65 are my favorite, and then I come back to this one and go, oh yeah, this one's my favorite. And then the other 65 become my favorite, and then I come back to this one and go, oh yeah, this one's my favorite. Uh, this, this is an amazing, amazing book. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to spend our time in this first chapter. Um, one of the beautiful things uh, about uh, this book is it really talks about how to have the heart uh, that God is looking for, but how God's going to accomplish a transformation. What you have in the book of Ezekiel is a group of people who have sinned in a, a amazing fashion against God, and we're going to read about those sins. And yet God is going to describe how he's going to change these people to be a people of his own uh, character and have that kind of heart and uh, passion and zeal for him that they were lacking at that time. And so how God does this uh, amazing work is is pictured throughout this, this book. And so we're going to get to really spend a lot of time looking at the beauty of that. Now, if you have your Bibles, that's going to be uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, and I put that, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 822. And, and one of the things that's interesting is in those first three verses of Ezekiel 1, uh, you're told that Ezekiel is a priest. He's a priest, and yet he's now going to see visions of God. And he's going to see amazing visions uh, of, of God. And in this first chapter, if you've ever read it, you know that it is something that is hard to visualize and, and contemplate in this, this amazing picture of the throne room of God. And Ezekiel has been captured and is in Babylon. Uh, it's the second invasion that has happened by the Babylonians against the land of Judah. And Ezekiel is given the task to preach to the people who've been carried, been carried away into exile. Your nearby book in your Bible's Jeremiah, just two books before, he is a prophet that's preaching to the people who were not taken in those first two invasions. And so Ezekiel has a very unique task. Of all the people who've been captured and are sitting there in exile in Babylon, he gets to preach to them. And you'll notice that those first three verses say that, that here he is, he is among the exiles by the Kibar River, and he saw visions of God. Uh, at this time, and the hand of the Lord is upon him. So one of the things that I want to spend a minute talking about before we, before we read this text is I want you to think about what God is trying to accomplish here in, the, in this opening chapter. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read that, that first chapter. Of course, the timing of my voice is fantastic for reading a whole chapter. I'm going to do it anyway. And we're going to read that first chapter. And one of the things I want you to uh, be doing is, is really two things. One, to do your very best to try to visualize what we're reading. This is a, an important visual of the throne room of God. And so to try your best to get a sense of what is going on, what is being visualized, paint that picture in your mind. Uh, if it works for you to just not look at your Bible and you're an audio listener, and just try to listen and paint it. If audio is not good for you, then follow along and try to paint it in your mind and just get an amazing picture of 
this scene of God on his throne. Second thing I want you to do is think about why this vision. And the tendency to think, well, this is just what it looks like in heaven. Well, God reveals certain pictures for a certain reason. For example, Isaiah 6 doesn't look like this. When the throne room before Isaiah is open, that's not what he sees. When you're in Revelation 5, it doesn't look the same there either. And so here's Ezekiel 1, and it's a unique visual of God's throne. And so God is painting something in particular that he wants his people to learn as you see this. And it's not just supposed to be, oh, wow, isn't that crazy? There's something to it. There is a message to it. There's a reason behind it. So not only be visualizing, but thinking about what is God trying to communicate? And that's going to be the whole of our lesson. So we're going to talk about, so what did God communicate through those images? All right, you feel ready? You're revved up? Here we go. Ezekiel 1, verse 4. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was a fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, And their feet had hooves, like those of a calf, and shone like burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the beings beside it. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning. Each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle at the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings. One pair stretched out to touch the wings of the living beings on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. They went in whatever direction the spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning. The living beings looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, and lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them, and the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. As I looked at these beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them, one wheel belonging to each. The wheels sparkled, As if made of burl, all four wheels looked alike and were made of the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it, and beings could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. When the living beings moved, the wheels moved up with them. When they flew upward, the wheels went up too. The spirit of the living beings was in the wheels, and wherever the spirit went, 
the wheels and the living beams also went. When the beams moved, the wheels moved. When the beams stopped, the wheels stopped. When the beams flew upward, the wheels rose up. For the spirit of the living beams was in the wheels. Spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. Beneath the surface, the wings of each of the living beams stretched out to touch the other wings, and each had two wings covering its body. As they flew, their wings sounded to me like waves crashing against the shore, or like the voice of the Almighty, or like the shouting of a mighty army. And when they stopped, they let down their wings, and they stood with their wings lowered as a voice spoke from beyond the crystal surface above them. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis luzi, And on this throne high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And when I saw it, I fell down on the ground as I heard someone's voice speaking to me. That is a stunning, stunning picture. And what a neat picture it gives of this throne room scene uh, of God. And as I said to you, one of the things I want you to do is think about, so why these images? What is God trying to communicate through these stunning pictures uh, of this throne room scene? So I think there's a number of things that God was wanting to see. Number one, you are getting a picture of God of how he is not limited. One of the fantastic things that is hard to get your mind around is you have wheels in wheels that can go any direction, but they're always going straight. (laughs) It doesn't turn, always straight, but it goes every direction you want it to go. That already breaks the brain. Like, okay, what did that doing that the wheels are in wheels that always go straight, but the wheels never turn, but they go every direction. And you're getting a visual of God in that, that you have a God who is not limited. And this would be important for these people to hear, that you have a God who is ruling over all of the earth. He has a, a global rule and that nothing is out of his jurisdiction. Nothing is out of his control. He is moving in all places. He is not constrained in any way that he's unable to move about the earth and to be among his people or to go where he desires. Everywhere he wants to go, he can go, and he always goes in straight fashion. Second, I think one of the amazing things you see about God in this picture is you'll notice that he is not ignorant. One of the things that's interesting about the wheels is that you are told that there are eyes all around the wheels. So here are the wheels, always going straight, can go in every direction, so there's no limitation. And yet eyes all around gives you a visual 
that he is absolutely all-knowing. He knows everything that is going on. It is a picture of him being able to see everything that is going on on the earth. And again, imagine now you have a people who are suffering, who are under difficulty because of their sins and they're in captivity. And you're already hearing a picture that God is saying, I can be everywhere. I'm not limited. And I see everything that is going on. Third, we've already noted that this throne room is able to go in all directions without turning. Therefore, the picture is God is not crooked. Everything he does is straight. Everything he does is right. There is nothing that God does that is wrong. He does not shift. He does not change. He is always moving straight. That is just a wild concept to visualize that however he's going, that's straight. Wherever he goes, that's straight. And so he does nothing wrong, nothing crooked. And so again, imagine in this suffering and in this trial, you're hearing a message from God. I haven't done anything wrong. Everything is right. Everything is going according to God's plan. He has not changed. He has not shifted. Number four. Did you notice how much action is going on? That's one of the big takeaways, I think, of the scene. Is you don't have a scene here where you come into the throne room of God and everything's asleep and quiet. There's all kinds of action. You've got wings that are moving, which is making a sound like like massive roaring waters or like the sound of an army. You have movement happening. When the wings go up, the wheels go up. When the wings come down, the wheels come down. Things are moving around. Everything is in action. You don't have a God who's asleep. You don't have a God who is taking a break. You aren't entering the throne room scene and going, why isn't God active? You have an active God. He is at work. He is doing his, his work. In fact, you will really notice that idea there in verse 4, where you're getting a visual there where it pictures God coming as this storm, this, this mighty wind, this great cloud with brightness all around and with a fire in the midst of it. And when you see a visual of a storm, particularly coming from the north, that would be an image of God acting in judgment. Probably should have made a map of this, but if you visualize Israel, every nation that would attack Israel, except for Egypt that lived in the south, would always have to come from the north. You didn't come across the wilderness to get across to them. You always had to come up and over. And so here's a visual of God coming in judgment. He is active. He's coming from the north. Brilliant lights, fire within, storm cloud visualized as he starts rolling in and and coming. We just recently had uh, the bands of that hurricane that just devastated uh, Fort Myers. And you just think about for a moment, if you looked outside that evening when we got that really good one that came in to our area, and 
the lights are flashing and the storm is dark and just imagine the sound and just that visual of what's coming is here is God coming. And so God is not passive. He is at work. He is active. He's not asleep, but there is constant action. Number five, God's not unfaithful. You know where you catch that idea is toward the very end is you'll notice that in verse 28, when Ezekiel looks above the throne, did you notice what he sees? But a rainbow. And a rainbow in scriptures represents God's covenant to his people. That harkens back to the days of Noah, where after the flood, God puts his rainbow in the cloud and said, this is my covenant promise that I would not destroy the world by water again. And so to behold the rainbow is a visual of a covenant God, that here is a God who is not unfaithful, who always keeps his word, who always keeps his promises. And then finally, which probably the most important of all of these pictures, is God's not like us, is he? When you come into that throne room scene, you don't sit there and go, oh, well, this is easy to describe. It doesn't take but a few seconds and you start losing the visual. Like I'm with you in the storm and then all of a sudden we've got something that's human that has four faces, but the four faces are different animals. And then you've got legs, but then you've got hooves and it just starts all of a sudden just blowing your mind. And what is God trying to to communicate here? Except an amazing visual that God is not like us. And I think this would be very important, not only in Ezekiel's day, but certainly in our day. You cannot bring God down to our level. You cannot take the glory of God and be able to simplify it into something that is comprehensible to us. It is far too majestic, far too amazing, far greater than anything we could possibly grasp or understand. And here is God trying to just give a sense of how amazing he is, a visual of how completely different he is as Ezekiel looks around and sees all that that is there. It is truly God's image that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The glory of God cannot be described. It defies visualization. Uh, I think I, I made a comment about that a couple of weeks ago in our Wednesday class that if you even try as amazing as the artistic minds we have of humanity, try to find somebody who has captured artistically this vision. You're not going to find it. I even went to Google to see if I could say, all right, who got close? I mean, nothing's close. No, nobody's got this. How do you draw this amazing spiritual realm? How do you even comprehend it enough to even have an output except that God's trying to say he is not like us at all. So now I asked for, for our applications tonight. So what is God trying to teach his people? If these are the big takeaways of these visuals, then what is God trying to teach his people? And I think you have two big points from this first chapter. Number one, beholding the glory of God 
must lead us to have a deep awe of God. And I think that's something that's easily lost. You know, too often God gets described as, you know, well, the big guy in the sky or the big man upstairs. We can kind of use it in these kind of light, joking ideas of, you know, he's just kind of that guy. And this is such a staggering visual to try to invoke within the hearts of all who would read it a a deep sense of awe uh, of who God is. And so, friends, we need to see that majesty. We need to see that glory because beholding that glory and beholding that majesty and having that awe is supposed to lead us to worship. It's supposed to lead us to submission. It's supposed to lead us to obedience. It's supposed to lead us to humility. In fact, it is so powerful. Did you notice how the chapter ends? The chapter ends with Ezekiel being thrown down to the ground. The glory of God is so overwhelming that he is on his face. And he cannot lift up his head because this scene is so awe-inspiring. But let me be more accurate. It's not the glory of God that throws him to the ground. Did you notice the wording that's given there at the, in the middle of verse 28? This was the appearance of of the likeness of the glory of God. And I'm going to step it backward one. This is a vision of the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. This is five degrees removed from God. It doesn't say that he saw God. He had a vision That was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And it threw him to the ground and he couldn't get up. In fact, every time people have a vision of the glory of God, you'll know that they are on the ground. You know, we have this really crazy idea like, yeah, one day in the judgment seat, when we get there, I'll, I'll stand before God and the, the books are opened. And, you know, we're all going to stand there and plead our case and we're going to tell God. <laughs> oh, we have missed the majesty and the awe of what God is. Here you have a vision of the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. You might remember Moses wanted to be able to see God. God's answer. Flesh can't handle that. Flesh cannot see the full blown glory of God. And Ezekiel 1 helps us understand that. If a vision that is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God 
puts Ezekiel on the dirt, then no one would be able to stand before God himself. It's a stunning visual that is intended to invoke that kind of awe of God so that we would worship him, that we would submit to him, and that we would be humbled before him. But number two, as staggering as all that is, the New Testament says something even more staggering. Listen to what John said. John said, in speaking about Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. So notice here's the statement. We saw Christ. We saw his glory. And a few sentences later, he makes this point. Now, no one has ever seen God. This is a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. No one's seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. What the New Testament does, it comes along and says, you can't see God. Too majestic, too amazing, too powerful, too much. Vision of the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God puts you on the ground. But you have seen the glory of God. You've seen it in Christ. You are able to see the full-blown glory of God with the lens of Christ. And that's what John is saying. You haven't seen God, but guess what you have seen? And that's why John can say, we've beheld his glory. We have seen God when we look upon Christ. And the power of that message is supposed to be awe-inspiring and transforming. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. This is, this is amazing. So we can't behold God. It's too much. But Paul says, and John says, we've seen Christ. And here it says, we all, unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord. What are we looking at? We're looking at Christ. We're looking at him. And as we look at him, that glory of God, notice what's supposed to be happening. We're being transformed into the same image. And then notice the wording. From one degree of glory to another. You are moving into this majesty. You are moving in glory as you go from who we are as sinful people. And we behold the majesty of God through the lens of Christ. That 
is supposed to be so life-transforming that we are changed more and more into his image. And this is from God himself. So often we talk about in our lessons, how are we supposed to be transformed? How are we supposed to go from the old self to the new self? How do we put sin to death? How do we put on the armor of God? How do we become what God wants us to be? This is the number one answer. Behold the glory of God. See him in all of his glory. When you see him for who he is and appreciate that glory, the outcome is transformation. Life will be changed. And when we see who God is, then a God who is not limited, a God who is not ignorant, a God who is not crooked, a God who is not passive, a God who is not unfaithful, a God who is not like us. We will experience a transformation that God wants us to have from one degree of glory to another until we finally are able to actually enjoy in eternity beholding God face to face. If this is a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, can you imagine what's going to look like when we get there? It'll be a wonderful thing that we have spiritual bodies that will be able to absorb the full blast glory of the Lord on display. It helps you get a visual of like why the book of Revelation would say, you know, there's no need of sun. <laughs> well, why don't we need the sun? Because the glory of the Lord is its light. We can't even look at the sun. You can't even look at the sun when there's an eclipse. You still burn your eyeballs out. Even that little halo around it will just absolutely barbecue your retina. Imagine the glory of God being stronger than the sun. Unveiled for the people of God to experience. One final point. And to me, this is the whole idea of why this is here. Back up to verse 3 of Ezekiel 1. Back up to verse 3. Where is Ezekiel when all this happens? You will notice that verse 3 tells us that Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's at the river Kibar. And it says that the hand of the Lord was on him there. Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's not in that promised land. He's been captured. He's been taken away. He's now in exile. Judah is experiencing God's punishment for all of the years of their sins. And yet, even though he is taken away from the promised land, taken away from Jerusalem, taken away from the temple, and is all the way in Babylon... It says God's hand 
was there. Friends, the whole message here is that even in our darkest of times, the glory of, the God, of our God is still there. Separated from his people, separated from his land, separated from his temple, separated from his work of being a priest, put in punishment because of his sins and the sins of the nation. Here they are in exile. And God's hand is still there. And God's still revealing his glory. And it is such an important message and vision for us that when we are alone, when we feel like we are far from God, you can know that God is with you. And you can know that God's not passive. Even though we cannot see beyond our sky, in that throne room of God, God is at work. And wheels are turning. And the throne is moving, and the wings are moving, and the sound of rushing waters, and God is on his throne, and he is at work to still rescue his people, even after all that they've done against him. What an amazing God we serve, and may our eyes always turn upward to the glorious throne of God, so that we will always stand in awe and have reverence for our God, submit to him, and be humbled by how amazing and glorious he is. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the vision of the likeness of the appearance of your glory It is incomprehensible. And Lord, thank you for giving us just a small little picture of how overwhelming your glory is. Thank you for giving us a little bit of your majesty that we could see with all of its power and might revealing who you are and how amazing you are. But Lord, even more stunning, thank you for your son because you have said to us that when we look at him, we can see you in all your glory. Lord, we pray that we would have a greater appreciation for your son a greater respect for who he is, a greater awe for who he is and what he's done for us. And Lord, thank you for sending him so that though we could not see you, we can see him and behold your glory and be transformed from that amazing glory. Lord, forgive us for not being transformed. Forgive us for when we have not been in awe of who you are and how glorious you are. Forgive us for how often we lose sight of how completely different you are from us. And as the psalmist wrote, 
Who are we as humans that you would be mindful of us when we behold the complete majesty of who you are? Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for this picture that reminds us that even in our darkest of times, your glory is there with us. Help us to move forward with you in service to you in days ahead as we are more aware of your power and majesty. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to sing an invitation song, and we invite you to come to Jesus tonight and that the, the power of God's glory would just resonate within you to such an extent that it would motivate you to serve this God. Uh, it is just unbelievable to think that God can be this amazing, this above us and so much greater than us and so much glory and then care for us like he does. He cares for you. All of this is because he wants you to be with him. Would you turn away from your sins? Follow him with all of your heart, confessing him to be the son of God and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you do that tonight? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?